You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered. Listener-supported. Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. And I'm Elise Perry. This is the WFHB Local News for Wednesday, January 31st, 2024. You see a variety of papers starting to spring up from a nonprofit standpoint, uh, but corporate entities are, are getting rid of their local news. In today's feature report, Big Talk producer Michael Glab speaks with the publisher of the Limestone Post, Ron Eid, and board president Becky Hill about the state of local news, nonprofit journalism, and what the future will look like for the online magazine. More in today's feature report. Also coming up in the next half hour, looking ahead on Better Beware, your weekly consumer watchdog segment on the WFHB local news. More following today's feature. But first, your local headlines. On January 23rd, several parents, staff, and community members attended the Monroe County Community School Corporation board meeting to express their opinions about the elementary school consolidation plan proposed by District Superintendent Jeff Hauswald this past December. Hauswald's proposal suggested two potential mergers with the goal of balancing the socioeconomic status within the school district. The first would combine Templeton Elementary and Childs Elementary students, where Childs Elementary would house pre-K to second grade and Templeton Elementary would house third grade to sixth grade. The second would combine University Elementary and Fairview Elementary students, where University Elementary would house pre-K to third grade and Fairview Elementary would house fourth grade to sixth grade. Parent to two Templeton Elementary students and spouse to a Templeton Elementary teacher, Colleen Rose, spoke for the proposal, briefly discussing the differences in test scores, socioeconomic status, and PTO funding between Templeton and Childs Elementary. I hope that a progressive school board takes progressive action. I hope that this progressive community affirms and supports efforts to send our children to integrated schools. I fear that privileged voices will drown the viability of a merger in a million micro arguments focused on inconvenience and timing, and in doing so, continue to kick this can down the road. Community member Nathaniel Grow spoke out against the proposal highlighting disparities between the schools chosen and not chosen for consolidation and explaining that the problem at hand needed more analysis, explanation, and discussion among the community. And so ultimately, if you're going to do this, it needs to be a district-wide solution that ensures that the benefits and the burdens of this process are shared equally amongst all families in the district. Arbitrarily selecting a handful of winners and losers and continuing to do business as usual otherwise, that's not equity. This is a district-wide problem. It demands a district-wide solution. Please do not move forward on this current proposal. Thank you. MCCSC Board Assistant Secretary Ashley Pirani reassured members that the board has been transparent with them and recognized that changes take time. But that's 
it. It's just a proposal. It's just a beginning point for us to springboard off and have this conversation. Board member Brandon Schur moved to add conversations about consolidating Childs and Templeton Elementary and countywide redistricting to the March agenda. In the meantime, board members agreed to release parent forums, teacher forums, and an online question portal to encourage conversations about the topics amongst the community. The next MCCSE board meeting will be held on February 27th. During the January 22nd meeting of the Bloomington Redevelopment Commission, the commissioners heard three contract proposals for renovations to the city's Showers West building. This is the next step in an initiative to relocate police and fire headquarters to City Hall. City Attorney Larry Allen walked through the resolutions before the commission and noted that some of the current tenants are not keen to move out early. These four resolutions, and this one included, are part of your ownership of what's now called Showers West, uh, purchase of that building. As you know, there are existing tenants in that. Uh, the current administration, we had discussion about that at the end of last year about whether we wanted to go ahead and approve contracts and move forward. Uh, the RDC chose to wait and postpone the consideration of contracts to its February meeting. Uh, the new administration currently is reviewing the use of that building. It does anticipate using it in some way and part of the direction of course corporation council margie rice is here so she could correct me uh, uh and say any, fill in any details that i miss of course uh our direction has been to continue as we are moving forward at least with the lease terminations because we do anticipate of uh, transforming the use of the building over time into some city use is the current thinking that has not been finalized yet in terms of what that that will look like staff is still evaluating that the mayor's office is still evaluating that so there will be more considerations but these four resolutions are essentially to, as part of the discussions, these were people that were willing to terminate their lease early to vacate some office space and free it up within the building. Um, and so we've negotiated lease terminations with each of these four. The first one for your consideration is with Kerr Law. Uh, this is a very fairly small office. Um, and we negotiated a lease termination here. Uh, it's it's actually part of what would be, at least what in the original plans, would potentially be part of the fire administration portion of the building, uh, which is mostly um, uh, office space, I believe, uh, on that side of the building. Uh, in this case, the termination is for $5,000, which is essentially covering the moving cost uh, for early termination and then just releasing of the lease. Commission member John West asked about how the transition to the new mayoral administration has impacted the project. Allen responded. I've got a couple of questions. It's maybe not just pertinent to this lease, but since I'm a little late to the dance here, um, give me a little, and, and we've had a change of administration, so um, kind of begs the question, why don't we want to get the revenue as long as we can, because we really don't have any kind of a timeline to reutilize the building. So I guess one of my questions is why, why do we terminate any leases? Yeah, so I think one of the things is there's still a, a viable option potentially on the table to go forward with some renovations even fairly quickly this year. And these are, these are negotiations that have been occurring over the course of months uh, with these tenants. And so to even have that still on the table, uh, we thought it prudent to move forward as we had planned with the lease terminations. Of course, you know, we did collect essentially a full year of lease payments. That was one of the interest uh, uh, that was prior advances to try to maximize revenue. But 
Corporation Counsel Margie Rice followed up on the points made by Allen, saying that some tenants are ready to move out, while at least half a dozen others prefer to stay. The leases that are before you tonight, though, for terminations, my understanding from talking to Chris Cockrum, who's an agent that's been helping us, that these people are ready, they've made up their mind, they're ready to move on to a new facility, and they're a little reluctant to sign new leases while this is hanging out here. So these, this group... Uh, is ready to go. And if we weren't to approve them, I think we'd be holding them back from, from doing what they want to do. Now, there is a group still of people that are have not yet made, wrapped their heads around leaving the showers uh, west. And so we're going to continue to talk with Chris and talk with those people. And it may be that those that those groups stay longer. So that's still um, those those some of those uh, people who were told, hey, you're going to have to be out by January 31st are not packing up right now. They're not planning on leaving. And so we're going to continue to have conversations with them about what that looks like. It doesn't look as if we'll be in any, um, you know, in any shape to be moving in there at the end of the month. So I would expect that we'll we'll continue to let them stay there a little bit longer until we figure out what they want to do and what makes sense for us. Commission member Deborah Meyerson asked for more information on the status of current tenants. West also says he would appreciate more information in order for the commission to make an informed decision. Rice said that she can prepare a more comprehensive list of tenants by their February meeting. I don't recall having seen before the RDC intern, to the extent that the RDC is in the role of, you know, uh, approving lease terminations and compensation, etc. I don't recall having seen a list of all the tenants, Mm -hmm. what their lease terms are, what the income is in terms of revenue. I just, it was, it's really hard to kind of do it piece by piece here. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, for example, we've got these four resolutions here um, for these lease terminations, but I don't know how many other tenants there are. I don't have a sense of, you know, how it fits with the question of doing renovations early. And I don't need to know everything, mm-hmm. but I think even just a list yeah. of here's the tenants in the building, here's who's leaving, here's when their leases end. I just, it would be more transparent and helpful for me as opposed to looking at four individual resolutions to have a sense of the bigger picture. And I'm wondering if that's available. Yeah, we can get that for you. Sure. Um, Is that something you'd like a presentation at the next meeting or would you like that information? We could send that to you and then discuss it at the next meeting. Would that make sense? Okay. 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 We just want a collective group sure. of what we need to do in order to. Yeah. So none of these resolutions indicate when when the lease, the natural lease termination is. So we don't really have any clue as to what what, what kind of revenue we're, right. we're not going to collect. Yeah. You know, I, I, and I, as I'm, you know, started uh, brand new with the Thompson administration. So I haven't been part of the background. I was able to meet with Chris Cockrum, though, who it's my understanding that city hired as an agent to to do these negotiations. So what I think is appropriate, um, again, I've talked to him and he asked for these to be put on the agenda because these people are ready to go. And I think um, they'll be unhappy if if we if they're not able to sign their new leases with the new landlord um, at this point, since they have negotiated uh, these terminations. But I can ask Chris to attend the next meeting. We can get the information to you, try to give you that bigger picture, um, and and have that for you in the February meeting. 
the Bloomington Redevelopment Commission will meet again for its regular session on February 5th. In today's feature report, Big Talk producer Michael Glab speaks with publisher of the Limestone Post, Ron Ede, and board president Becky Hill about the state of local news, nonprofit journalism, and what the future of the magazine will look like for the online magazine. We turn to host and producer of Big Talk, Michael Glab, for more. get our news when newspapers finally die out. My guests this week have an idea. Bloomington's Limestone Post has been doing hard-hitting, long-form journalism since 2015. The online publication went nonprofit in 2019. It covers tough issues as well as the arts in this town and south-central Indiana. It's positioned right now to fill the vacuum caused by the demise of traditional local newspapers and magazines, those publications that depend on an advertising-based business model. Maybe there's room for cooperation among a variety of news-gathering sources. Wouldn't it take an upstart like Limestone Post to lead the way? My guests are Limestone Post founder and executive editor Ron Ede and Rebecca Hill, veteran science and healthcare journalist and president of Limestone Post's board of directors. Welcome to Big Talk. Thanks for having us. Thanks. News coming from Limestone Post. I'm looking at you, Becky. We we report on a variety of issues. Not only just here in Bloomington, but it, about what's happening in surrounding communities, too. I mean, I think that's really important to, to get those voices in, those rural communities, because what happens there impacts what happened in Bloomington, et cetera. But the news that we report on here is, uh, you know, not only the arts, but we're reporting on health and science. We're reporting on, you know, environmental, social justice issues, a wide variety of things. And, and that's what I find really exciting about Limestone Post. I think I ought to reveal that both you and I are contributors to Limestone Post as well. Right. Ron Ede has signed a check or two for both of us. <laughs> he has, he has. <laughs> <laughs> What's your role now that newspapers are in bad shape? Where are we going to get our news every day? I think that's a question being asked by a lot of communities nowadays because of the loss of local news just across the United States. I mean, you see a variety of papers starting to spring up from a nonprofit standpoint, uh, but corporate entities are are getting rid of their local news. And as a result, they're leaving communities bereft of what, you know, to know what's happening in their community. So here, we're lucky. I mean, we have a fragmented new sort uh, community. Um, we have a lot of different options, but not, we have the Herald Times, which is a corporate entity, but, um, you know, that's owned by Gannett, and it's, you know, been dying kind of on the vine in, in, in recent years because of the lack of resources and stuff. It's tough for them to put out, you know, all the news that they want to. So the question is, who's going to do that? A couple of years ago, I did a, a, a big talk 
on Laura Lane, the reporter from the Herald Times. We went into the Herald Times building. It was an empty cavern. It was actually, it was more like a tomb. It, it echoed. Yeah, it is really sad, especially because they have quite a few really talented writers. They do. You know, Laura's a really talented writer, and they have several others, too. So they're, they're doing the best they can with the resources they're mm-hmm. given. They're just not given a lot of resources, and that's part of the corporate ownership. And Jill, yeah. the executive editor, will tell you the same thing. Yeah. She has said so publicly. So when we started in 2015, Lene Swinsky and I co-founded the magazine. I wanted to set that straight. Um, That's right. We were focused on long-form, inclusive, in-depth journalism. Um, and immediately people were telling us, We, I even got an email from someone who said, Limestone Post fills a gap in the local media landscape. The problem is that gap has gotten much wider than a, one magazine or one news guy can fill, you know, in the community. Um, so in the 2010s, late 20 teens, I noticed that there was momentum toward funding nonprofit news from the big guys, from the MacArthur's and Knight Foundations. They were funding not only nonprofit news, but local news, because that has become such an issue. Um, the research has been ongoing for a long time about what happens to community when it loses its local news, yeah. news sources. And it's not pretty. So in 2019, Lene ended up moving to Georgia, and our marketing director moved out of town. So it was just me full-time with all our great contributors. So having my finger to the wind on the nonprofit news movement, I decided to convert Limestone Media, which is our official name, to a nonprofit in 2019. And then COVID hit in 2020. Yikes. Yeah. Um, which allowed me to step back and figure out nonprofit administration, nonprofit news, because it wasn't really my background. Mine was a little bit business, a little bit journalism. There are a lot of great resources here in town, and the nonprofit community is extremely helpful and supportive. So I was going to workshops and webinars and just asking people, what do you do about this? And um, so getting a lot of help, we we got our official letter of designation from the IRS in 2019. Um, and then I, I worked on the administrative part of it. And then I think it was in August of that year, I got an email from someone who was a, an experienced freelance writer and had a lot of experience in nonprofit management, administration and management. Her name was Becky Hill. I sent her an email and said, when can you start being <laughs> our president of the board? <laughs> wow. He exaggerates. <laughs> well, yeah, it was the next day she started. So <laughs> she has built the foundation of the organization from a nonprofit standpoint, has allowed me to focus more on editorial. We've, we've increased our publishing by, I think, 30% yeah. since... 2020. She's built the board up to 10 members now, yeah. I think 11, maybe 11, even just yeah. added the 11. Mm-hmm. We're, we're going in that direction. And like we said, it, the, the daily news landscape is fragmented now. There's some really good people doing some really good work out there. 
Um, the HT reporters are doing as good as they can given what they have. Um, so we are going around town talking to people, having listening sessions, just asking what do you see or want from a daily news source? Because Limestone Post Magazine is not going to be that source. Right. We can complement it. Doing stories uh, for you, I know I take good long time to get a story. This isn't, you know, get out there, hit the, hit the story, come back, and deadline is 5 o'clock. Yeah, I have that on my desk by 5. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I've ever said that. but So, yeah, we've been getting talking to a lot of people and getting some really good feedback. A lot of people are concerned. I don't think we've talked to anyone who said, oh, it's fine the way it is. Yeah. These are different sectors of the community. We've talked to people in the tech industry and, and healthcare and education and the arts and in a lot of different businesses. We're getting these different perspectives. It's kind of how we do a story to begin with, the solutions journalism type story where you bring in all these different voices and different points of view and you find out what what people want and what is doable. We won't recreate the HT from 25 years ago. We're yeah. not going to have 50 people in a newsroom. Right. Um, so there are ways. We are part of the Institute for Nonprofit News, which is a support organization. The members are, there are 450 members now, I think, of nonprofit news organizations. Everything from a, a little publication, online publication in New York, covering incarceration, another one in California covering immigration. You have ProPublica as a member, huh. Texas Tribune as a member. Um, so from the very small micro-focused organizations to nationwide organizations. And we've talked to a lot of them about, you know, yeah. how, how did you get started? We talked to the Wichita Beacon, Spotlight PA. Yeah, I just Remember. talked to Block club chicago oh yeah i they're, read that daily yeah, yeah. They're, they're a neighborhood publication and, and it, by the way the chicago sun times is non-profit yeah that's right it was pretty exciting talking to block club chicago because of, the, of their approach that they do with their neighborhoods they dedicate uh reporters to specific net neighborhoods and yeah. then they report on what's happening so you get really hyper local news that way and that's i think one of the things that we're looking to do too is to really focus on local news what people have been telling us is that they want local news they want to know what the sport score was you know at High the friday and, friday yeah. night game or yeah. you know or what's happening down you know what kind of construction's happening down and why you know that kind of thing and so, why was there that bunch of sirens at 11:30 yeah. p.m. Yeah, the and, other day yeah and, and that's why you know what we'll do is focus on what's happening locally you know and in neighborhoods, you know, with nonprofits, with the sporting community, those kind of things, in the local business, you know, community too. We want to report on those things. So, are you going to gather together many of these disparate news gatherers? We're talking to them. Um, everything's on the table. It's still early right now, but uh -huh. yeah. we we're thinking about an umbrella organization. We're not going to replace WFHB or WFIU yeah. or. B-Square Bulletin or anything like that, but we think that a lot of people complain that they don't want to have to go here for news. They don't want to have mm -hmm. to go over here for another story. They they want it all in one place, so we're thinking of ways that we can collaborate mm -hmm. with them. Um, you know, Jeremy Hogan does the breaking news and the yeah. photojournalism, and 
Dave does the, Dave uh, Askin, the government. Oh. So there are different ways of doing that. We collaborate with uh, WFHB Now on our uh, deep dive series. Yeah. And we've collaborated with WFIU on, on many different projects. And, and I can see that working with, with other people as well. So. Up next, looking ahead on Better Beware, your weekly consumer watchdog segment on the WFHB Local News. We turn to host and producer Richard Fish for more. Beware. Here's your consumer watchdog from WFHB Community Radio with the latest information and helpful hints designed to keep your head out of the clouds, your feet on the ground, and your money in your pocket. This time, we're continuing our look at some of the nastiest new wrinkles in the scamscape as we head into 2024. The sweepstakes scam has been around for a long time. That's when you get an email or a text or a phone call saying, Congratulations, you're a big winner! And dangling a great big number in front of you, starting with a dollar sign and containing lots of zeros to the left of the decimal point. Up to now, the swindlers have asked that you pay them a fee for processing the claim. But too many people now know that you should never pay money to get money, so they've switched tactics. Now, the thieves just ask for your personal information to validate the claim, or maybe your bank account numbers so that money can be transferred. Of course, if you fall for that, they can just go to your bank account and drain it. But now they're even getting sneakier about that, making a few small withdrawals first to see if you're checking your account regularly. Then they go ahead and open up credit cards and lines of credit in your name and saddle you with their debts. But one thing hasn't changed. If something seems too good to be true, it probably is. Celebrity scams have exploded since the pandemic when stars couldn't make public appearances and turned to social media to keep their names bright and shiny. If you get a message in any form, especially on social media, that appears to come from a famous person or for someone who works for them, like a manager, agent, or publicist, watch out. If you respond, you'll get in touch with someone impersonating the star and doing it very well, perhaps with an AI helping, who will eventually hit you for a contribution or a personal loan. The grandparent scam has a new paint job, too. Instead of just asking for a chunk of money to help your grandchild or other relative who is stranded or in jail or in the hospital, you talk to someone who gives you a case number and a phone number to call. When you do, another member of the scammer team asks for the case number, and it all sounds very official and very real when it's actually very phony indeed. Thanks to artificial intelligence programs, the call may even appear to come from your loved one in their voice. 
When a family emergency presents itself, don't act quickly. Verify the facts first by calling the people involved. And the Summer Olympics are coming up this year in Paris, France. Fake ticket scams are already online, and emails from someone supposedly stranded in Paris have begun trolling for suckers. You'd better be suspicious of any message about the Paris Olympics that comes from out of the blue. Merci, mon ami. I'm Richard Fish for WFHB News and Public Affairs. Better Beware comes to you from WFHB Bloomington, Indiana. Find all our episodes at wfhb.org. If you can help put the kibosh on a con, email beware at wfhb.org. Remember, swindlers never give a sucker an even break. WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolar.com.